In this passage, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, the situation is that there was a distribution of food to the widows in the church to help them out. And the Greek-speaking Jews were being neglected uh, over against um, those who were not Greek speakers. And what we see in this passage is that the apostles institute a new office in the church, the diaconate. And when we say the diaconate, that's just a fancy way of saying the office of the deacon. And when we say the office of the deacon, we're not talking about the room in which the deacon works. We're talking about the role or the uh, function, the formal position of the deacon. Just as the office of the pastor or the pastorate isn't the office that the pastor works in, but rather the formal role or the formal position of the pastor. So in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, we see the institution of the diaconate. And it bears noting that people would dispute, some people would dispute that this is actually the institution of the diaconate. They say, well, we don't know for sure that these, this was the institution of the diaconate because the term isn't used in this particular place or whatever, as the argument goes. But if that's the case, then what you have is instructions in 1 Timothy 3 about the qualification of deacons. You have deacons mentioned at other places in the New Testament. But if that's the case, that this is not the institution of the diaconate, you literally have no teaching in the Bible about what the diaconate is and what deacons are to do, which should make you suspect that probably that's not a very tenable position. Secondly, if this is not the institution of the diaconate, then not only do you have no biblical guidance anywhere else about what a deacon is, but you also have an unidentified office being instituted here. And so you have no description of deacons elsewhere in the New Testament, who they are and what they do. But you also have this unnamed thing with no title, which doesn't seem to appear anywhere else in the New Testament. So basically when we put those two things together, we should see that this thing, which is instituted here, is named elsewhere in the scripture. Deacons. And so this is, in fact, the institution of the diaconate. We're focusing on the diaconate this morning. As I said last week, these sermons on the leadership of the church, last week we looked at pastors or elders, and this week we're looking at deacons. These sermons aren't just for the existing pastors and deacons of the church, nor are they merely for aspiring pastors and deacons. They're for the whole church. Sermons on leadership, church leadership, help all the members of the church understand how leaders are supposed to function so that they can appoint good ones in the first place and so that they can come alongside and help and assist struggling ones and so that they can hold accountable and even if necessary, ultimately reject bad ones. Sermons on church leadership also help members be better members as they understand where they, as members, fit into the whole organism that is the church, and how they, in their part of the body, relate to other parts of the body. With little children, you talk about hand-eye coordination. 
the hand functions better when it works together with the eye. And the eye functions better when it works together with the hand. And so some awareness, some connection between the two body parts is important for the body to function properly. And so part of maturing uh, physically is learning to help the differing body parts work together. So it is in the church. Part of maturing as a church is learning how to help the different parts function together. And so sermons on church leadership can help even those who aren't church leaders by helping us all function better together. So let's consider the work of the diaconate this morning. And I trust that by the end we all, current pastors, myself and Pastor Chris in Toronto, and current deacons, uh, Ron and Riley in Toronto, and aspiring pastors and deacons, uh, as there may be some among us, and the rest of the congregation will benefit uh, from this study. Let's hope and pray, and I trust as we work together, that we will all be edified and full of worship as we consider the gift that the diaconate is from God to the church. We're going to consider four things as we go this morning. First, the men who do the work. Second, the appointment of these men to the work. Third, the nature of the work. And fourth, the importance of the work. So let's begin then with the men who do the work. And notice first that I said the men, in keeping with verse 3, which says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. There's certainly no conclusive case for the ordination of women to the office of deacon anywhere in Scripture. At best, there's an ambiguity in Scripture, which is leveraged by some to make the case for female deacons. However, we believe here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church that the supposed ambiguity is actually not all that ambiguous and that it may be resolved. Good exegesis of 1 Timothy 3 seems to us to demonstrate conclusively, even from that passage alone, that Paul is not referring to female deacons there when he says, likewise, the women. We don't have time to get into that today, so let me just state that. And then when we consider that the diaconate is an authoritative office, which we'll see in due time as we work through this morning. When we consider that the diaconate is an authoritative office, and that Paul prohibits the exercise of authority by women over men in the church in 1 Timothy 2, then there's really no case left for arguing biblically for female deacons. Some will advance, however, pragmatic arguments for the appointment of women to the diaconate. For example, many will argue, and rightly so, that women can minister in some ways more effectively to other women than men can. I don't think anyone would dispute that point in principle. However, the conclusion is drawn from the premise that since women can minister more effectively to other women in some ways, therefore, women should be appointed as deacons in order to minister more effectively to other women. Consider a couple of responses to that view. First of all, if there ever was an instance of choosing women strategically in order to minister more effectively to other women, then wouldn't the very situation in Acts chapter 6 actually be a case in point? 
In other words, if you were ever going to strategically choose women to minister more effectively to other women, then wouldn't a situation where the elderly women of the church need to be cared for be a prime example of when you would choose women to do that particular work? Therefore, Cornelius Van Dam observes in his book, The Deacon, that it seems to be a matter of principle that women were chosen, or pardon me, that men were chosen in Acts chapter 6. It seems to be a matter of principle. Notice that it is indeed men who were chosen for this word in this initial and precedent-setting case of appointing deacons in Acts chapter 6. Second, those who argue that because women can minister more effectively in some ways to other women than men can, therefore women should be appointed as deacons, those who argue thus commit a logical fallacy. They're drawing a conclusion that isn't warranted by the premise of the argument. Just because women can minister more effectively to other women in some ways, it doesn't necessarily follow from that premise that therefore women can minister more effectively to other women in this particular way. So again, biblically, we see that there's no compelling case. Not only is there no compelling case for the appointment of women to the diaconate, but also when the data of Scripture is properly considered and correct, warranted inferences are made, there's actually a strong and conclusive case that women may not be deacons. I should say at this juncture that proponents of the understanding that deacons may be either male or female are not necessarily unfaithful compromisers. All right? There are lots of good churches um, who have female deacons, lots of uh, good pastors, faithful, conservative, Bible-believing pastors who believe that you may have female deacons. I would simply say that in those cases, these churches or these pastors have committed unintended exegetical errors while all the while endeavoring to be faithful to Scripture. Or they simply misunderstand the nature of the diaconal office and then draw the wrong conclusions about the eligibility of women for that role. I myself even used to hold the position that the office is open to both men and women. And so I don't mean to be shrill or cantankerous about this issue, but I do wish to be clear that it is our understanding here at CRBC that like the eldership, the diaconate is to be comprised of men only by God's appointment. Consider now that these men must be of good repute. That's in verse 3. They must have good reputations. This is fairly straightforward, so I'm not going to belabor the point. We mustn't appoint men as deacons in the church whose reputation is such that it would cause unbelievers in the church's sphere of influence to raise their eyebrows at our choices of men to lead in the assembly of God. It should seem fitting, even in the eyes of the unbelievers around us who know us, it should seem fitting that we would appoint men the men that we do, to be leaders in the church. Deacons must be of good reputation. The men should also be full of the Spirit and wisdom. That's in verse 3. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? A thorough answer dealing with all the objections and questions is beyond the scope of this sermon, but I'll answer briefly with an excerpt from a sermon that I preached only a couple months ago. 
entitled Jesus and Spirit Baptism from John chapter 1. And you can go back and listen to that. It's online at our website, crbcbarbados.com slash sermons, if you want to hear the whole thing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is nothing more or less than receiving the Holy Spirit. We know this because receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized in the Holy Spirit are equivalent terms in the book of Acts. We read in Acts chapter 2 verse 17 and verse 33 that God poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts 2.38 says the Holy Spirit is a gift of God, which is obviously the language of giving. And all of this is in fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, where he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then in Acts chapter 10 and verse 45, the language of the Holy Spirit being poured out is used again. And in Acts chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, the terms baptism and gift are used again. So this is what God does. Through Christ. He gives the Holy Spirit. He pours out. He baptizes. All of those are synonymous terms in the book of Acts. They mean the same thing, as does the Spirit coming upon or falling on certain people. See Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Acts chapter 8 and verse 16, Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. Acts chapter 11 and verse 15, and Acts chapter 19 and verse 6 for the interchangeable uses of these terms. Pouring out, baptizing, giving the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming on, the Holy Spirit falling upon certain people, receiving the Holy Spirit. All of these are interchangeable terms in the book of Acts. And so we know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit then is nothing more or less than the Holy Spirit coming upon you or being given to you or you receiving the Holy Spirit. Now coming to our point that deacons should be full of the Spirit, John Stott notes helpfully in his book, Baptism and Fullness, that the fullness of the Spirit was the consequence of the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism is what Jesus did, pouring out the Spirit from heaven. The fullness is what the disciples received. The baptism was a unique initiatory experience. The fullness was intended to be the continuing, the permanent result, the norm. Deacons, then, coming back to our main idea today, are simply to be those who as all Christians have, have received the Holy Spirit and are those who are living the normal Christian life as a result. Not the normal Christian life as in the norm defined by the weakness of the anemic Christianity that is so prevalent around us today, but the norm as defined by the New Testament. That... The giving of the Holy Spirit to the men that we're considering for deacons has had its intended effect. That these are men who are obedient to the Holy Spirit. 
That these are men who are yielding to the Holy Spirit. That these are men who as sails are carried along by the wind. These are men who are being carried along by the Holy Spirit. That they are being pushed, influenced by the Holy Spirit and are yielding to that influence. And so deacons don't have to be running around the room waving purple flags, blowing horns and speaking in tongues. When we read that deacons must be full of the Holy Spirit. But deacons do have to be normal New Testament Christians. In other words, you shouldn't read the New Testament's description of a Christian and think our deacons are not like that. If only our deacons were like that. That shouldn't be what you think when you read the New Testament descriptors of Christians. You should think, man, our deacons are great examples of what this passage would look like if it was lived out. That's what it means. Fullness of the Spirit looks like normal New Testament Christianity. And deacons are to be full of the Spirit. Deacons are also to be full of wisdom. Look at verse 3. Now, you might at this point have the propensity to think that deacons are to be found in some small little cabin in the wilderness. You know, or, or up sitting alone, meditating on top of Chalky Mount or something like this. When we read that our deacons are to be full of wisdom, we might immediately think, well, we need to appoint the gurus among us. Those who have a higher level of awareness, who live on a higher plane of transcendence or something like this. But consider some of the things that the scripture says about wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wise men have reverence for God. They are afraid of the sin which might interrupt their communion with God. And bring them under God's displeasure. God is big and weighty in the eyes of wise men. Then James chapter 3 and verse 15. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wise men are all of the above. And wisdom is more broadly... Simply the application of biblical principles to everyday life. I can't quote a chapter in a verse for that definition. But I can quote a whole book, Proverbs. If you go read Proverbs, this is what Proverbs does. It takes biblical principles and applies them to everyday life. And historically, Proverbs is known as being the cornerstone of the wisdom literature. So biblical wisdom is simply the application of biblical principles to everyday life. Therefore, wise men apply biblical principles to everyday life. And biblical wisdom includes and encompasses the requisite humility 
to receive correction and to endeavor to learn to apply biblical principles ever better. The scripture says a rebuke goes into a man of understanding more deeply than a hundred blows into the back of a fool. So a man of understanding, a wise man, listens and learns. You don't need to beat him. You just need to talk to him and show him the error of his ways. And he's ready and willing and in fact eager to apply biblical principles more consistently when he has the opportunity to do so. So we need to look for men like this in our midst. We don't have any local deacons. We need to look in our midst for men like this. And in due time, appoint them to the office of deacon. We need to look in our midst for men who fear God. We need to look in our midst for men in whose eyes God is big and weighty. Men who are afraid of sin. Not because they're afraid that they're going to lose their salvation. Because these men need to be grounded in the gospel. That God keeps, that God preserves, that God saves us not for our own merit, but for the merit of Christ. Nevertheless, men who are afraid of sin because they know that sin interrupts our communion with God. That sin dishonors Him. And they're afraid of that outcome. We need to look for men who are pure, as James 3 says. Men whose lives are characterized by holiness. Even as we talked about last week, the best of men are men at best. But our deacons ought to be, nevertheless, the best of men. As our pastors should be. Pure. Holy men. Characterized by purity. Men who are peaceable and open to reason, as James 3 says. And remember, being peaceable doesn't mean avoiding conflict, but it means seeking to resolve conflict in a godly way. We're not merely looking for guys that aren't always stirring up needless controversy and conflict. We're not merely looking for men who know how to hold their tongues and control their tempers. We're also looking for men who are not shirkers and avoiders of the necessary conflict, and men who are willing to have a reasonable conversation. And work out conflict in a godly way. We're not looking for yes men. But peaceable men. And we're looking for gentle men. Men who aren't afraid or unwilling. To be confrontational when necessary. Jesus as we know. Was gentle. And yet Jesus as we know called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They flipped over tables in the temple. Paul, who was eminently qualified to be at least a deacon in the church, I would say, was therefore by implication also gentle. And yet Paul knew how to turn a phrase to employ some cutting words and some firmness from time to time in dealing with those who needed a rebuke or in dealing with his opponents. So in saying we need gentlemen, we're not saying we need men who are afraid, or timid, or unwilling to be confrontational when necessary. But gentleness is 
the knowledge of how much force is necessary and then the employment of only that much force in situations. And so you don't, as I said before, you don't kill a fly with a sledgehammer. This week, I tried to drill a hole in a, in a dog collar with a, a big, heavy hammer drill and a huge drill bit. And I got the scars to prove it. The dog collar wrapped around the drill bit and pulled my hand in. And thankfully, I was not mangled too badly. But that was an example of a tool too big, too much force for the job at hand. We don't need to go into conversations that need maybe a little pin to be pricked through the dog collar and bring with us a hammer drill with a heavy drill bit. We don't need to be those who go in to kill a fly and bring a sledgehammer with us. We need men that are able to use restraint and deal tenderly with those who need to be dealt with tenderly. As I said last week with pastors, so it is with deacons. People in the church should feel like if anyone has to have a hard conversation with me, I want it to be the pastors or the deacons of the church. Those would be the guys that I would most like to have a hard conversation with. Because those guys know how to deal with people. They know how to be gentle. And they're going to tell me the truth. They're not going to dance around what needs to be said. They're not going to hold back from what needs to be said. They're not going to shrink back. As I said last week, drawing on Paul's language from Acts chapter 20. But they are going to be gentle with me. Deacons need to be gentle. Deacons need to be men who are full of mercy and good fruits. We've got to look for guys in our midst that are full of mercy and good fruits. Who do you see showing mercy to the people around? This is probably a better category for a lot of what flies under the banner of social justice these days. Right? Justice employ, implies what is owed. All right? And then we start talking about rich people owing poor people their money or something like this. And a whole bunch of errors ensue. Nevertheless, there is a thing called mercy where rich people give poor people their money. You understand? Where you... Don't necessarily owe someone your time, but you give someone your time. Mercy. Where you don't owe it to forgive a debt, but you forgive a debt. Mercy. We want to look for men in our midst who are merciful. And men whose lives are full of good fruits. And whom we see, obviously... We could employ the language of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Obviously, we could look for guys who, whose lives demonstrate that kind of fruit, and we could say their lives are full of good fruit. But we could also just look at uh, obedience to God's commands. This is the will of my Father, that you bear much fruit. We need to look for men who are fair-minded 
impartial. Who aren't playing favorites in the church. Who aren't going to administer the benevolent fund so that their cousins and their nephews and their aging parents are continually receiving benevolent assistance from the church while others in the church are neglected. Fair-minded and impartial so that even though the Hellenistic widows are no longer being neglected, neither are the Jewish-speaking widows. And then men who are sincere. Men who are not putting on a front. Men who are not doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Men who are sincere. We should keep our eyes peeled for these kinds of men. These are the men who do the work. Men who endeavor both to apply biblical principles consistently and are willing to learn to do it better. Who take a stand on clear biblical issues where they already know what the principles are. And men who are who will respond with a teachable attitude when confronted about something that is out of step with Scripture. The contrast to wise people in Proverbs are simpletons and fools. There's a spectrum with fools on one end and wise people on the other and simpletons somewhere in the middle. Fools are against wisdom. Simpletons are void of wisdom. Like children. And wise men have enough of it not to be simpletons, but also have enough of it to be ready to listen to correction and seek out more. So we want to look for men who are certainly not fools. But we also want to look for men who are not simpletons. And yet also men who are not know-it-alls and who are ready to learn to be even wiser. So deacons are to be men full of the spirit and full of wisdom. When we have men like this in the church who are willing and able to serve in the capacity of deacons, we ought to recognize them and appoint them to the work. So let's keep our eyes peeled for those kinds of men. And let's consider now briefly what this passage teaches us about their appointment to the work. They're appointed by Christ, the head of the church, through the apostles. Look at verse 3. The we, in verse 3 is, of course, the same as the we in verse 4. We will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It's the apostles in verse 4 who are going to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It's that same we at the end of verse 3 who are going to appoint these deacons to the task. The apostles... And therefore, Christ, through them, then, appointed these first deacons. Sinclair Ferguson tells us that the Greek word apostolos means a sent one. It was sometimes used in classical literature for a naval, the captain of a naval expedition. He might be known as an apostolos. The authority of an apostle to speak and act was therefore dependent on the nature of the authority of his sender. Charles Hodge explains that the logical consequence then is that as apostles of Jesus Christ, 
the apostles are plenipotentiaries of Christ. Men whom he personally selected and sent out, invested with full authority to teach and rule in his name. So let me explain what those two quotes that I just read. An apostle bears the authority of his sender. So the captain of a naval expedition bears the authority of the whole navy. And the apostles then of Jesus Christ bear the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what the word plenipotentiaries means. These apostles then, as plenipotentiaries of Christ, Hodge goes on to say, were not confined to any one territory, but had general jurisdiction over the churches, as is manifest from their letters. In this sense, listen, when the apostles act in an official capacity, then Christ himself acts. Thus, we need to understand that when the apostles here, in Acts chapter 6, institute the office of the deacon, then in that very act, Christ himself institutes the office of the deacon. They are recognized, these deacons, and also in some sense appointed by men. Note first that the deacons are congregationally assessed and chosen. Verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, etc., etc. The deacons are congregationally assessed and chosen. As I just said in the last section, we need to keep our eyes open looking for the right kind of men among us. And then we need to seek congregational affirmation of these men prior to appointing them to the office. At CRBC, that would look like in due time, the pastor's bringing a recommendation of a candidate and providing a waiting period as we do with members, although it it would most likely be longer in the case of a deacon. And then we would bring it to a congregational vote. Note second, that having been assessed and chosen by the congregation, the mechanism of these men's appointment to their office was the laying on of hands by the existing leadership of the church. And as John Calvin says on this point, it would not be a bad idea if we were to do the same today. And so in due time, we hope to do so. To lay hands on men whom Christ has called and whom the congregation has recognized as having the requisite character and the requisite gifts. Not only has Christ then said to these men, do the work, but we also will be saying to the men whom we ordain in due time, do the work. So now we know what kind of men are to be chosen for the work and how they're to be appointed for the work. Let's consider now the nature of the work. It's evident from Acts chapter 6 that the apostles institute the diaconate to deal with the issue of benevolently caring for the church's physically needy members. Benevolent and holistic care for each member of the church is certainly and inescapably part of Christ's mandate for His church. And He's given deacons a special role in tending to the physical and material needs of His sheep. As Cornelius Van Dam points out in his book, The Deacon, this is consistent with what we know of God's character from the rest of Scripture. 
this benevolent and holistic care. Beginning with God's abundant provision for Adam in the garden prior to the fall. Continuing with his miraculous sustenance of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And God's concern for the poor and the sojourner once the nation was established. All the way to Christ's compassionate care for the crowds who came to him. We see that God is concerned with the holistic well-being of his people. Not only their spiritual needs but also their physical needs. Not only their eternal needs, but their temporal needs. The diaconate needs to be understood as certainly nothing less than another note in this biblical symphony of God's tender, loving, holistic care for His people. However, the diaconate should be understood as more than that. The logic of the apostles is that they themselves ought to, as much as possible, devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The deacons who are appointed are therefore tasked with helping minimize the additional responsibilities that the apostles have to carry. So the presenting, the specific presenting issue in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, for which the deacons are appointed, is the benevolent ministry of the church. But the logic upon which the diaconate is instituted necessitates a broader set of diaconal responsibilities than simply administering benevolence within the church. If the apostles are truly to be able to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, then the deacons will have to shoulder the primary load of doing and or overseeing basically everything else. We can think of it like this. The apostles have two categories of work in mind. There's category one work, prayer and ministry of the word. And then there's category two work, everything else. The logic of the apostles is that they must devote themselves to category one work. And so they need to appoint men who will do and or oversee the likewise important and legitimate category two work that needs to happen. Now, with the discontinuation of the apostolic office, who in the church ought to be especially devoted to prayer and ministry of the word? Who are the most direct heirs of apostolic responsibilities? It's the pastors or the elders. So, to bring this discussion from, of the diaconate from Acts chapter 6 into the present, the role of deacons is primarily fundamentally to free up the pastors and elders from as many other responsibilities as possible so that the pastors or elders of the church may devote themselves as fully as possible to prayer and to the ministry of the word the church still needs men devoted to category one work prayer and ministry of the word listen prayer and ministry of the word are no less important now than they were In the time that Acts chapter 6, the events in Acts chapter 6 occurred. The church still then needs men who will take up the doing or overseeing of as much category 2 work as possible. These two groups of men are the pastors or elders and the deacons, respectively. So the diaconate was instituted 
in order to free up the apostles to devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. In the specific context of Acts chapter 6, that meant overseeing the benevolent ministry of the church. Therefore, the role of the diaconate is not less than doing or overseeing the benevolent ministry of the church, but the logic of the apostles necessitates that it is more. Ideally, the apostles would devote themselves as fully as possible to category one work, prayer and ministry of the word, and the deacons would take as much responsibility um, as possible for the doing or the overseeing of as much category two work in order to facilitate the narrowed focus of the apostles. Since at present the apostolic office is no longer extant, but the there still is a need for men to devote themselves to category one work. The church still needs rulers and teachers who are devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The church still, therefore, needs deacons to oversee or to do as much of everything else as possible so that there may be men who have a narrow focus on prayer and ministry of the word. contemporary situation could be summarized as follows. It's ideal for the elders or the pastors to devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And so the role of deacons is to take on the doing and or overseeing as much of the additional responsibilities in the church as possible in order to facilitate that narrow focus. Deacons take on as much responsibility for as much category two work as possible. Sometimes they do it. Sometimes the deacons do the category two work. Let me give you a couple of examples of when deacons might do the category two work. There are always uh, there's always the need for initiative in the church, and when no one else is taking the initiative, the deacons should take initiative. And then there are always dropped balls in the juggling act of the church. And when balls are dropped, it should be primarily the deacons who catch them. Traditionally, in many churches, it's the pastor or the pastors who take initiative to do things that no one else is doing. Or to think about things that need to be done that no one else is thinking about. Really, it should be the deacons who are taking the initiative to do the things that no one else is doing or to think about what needs to get done when no one else is thinking about what needs to get done. And then traditionally, when balls are dropped, it falls to the pastor to catch the dropped balls. So for example, when no one else thinks to empty the garbage, I'm not, I'm not trying to come down on anyone, right? but if no one else thinks to do it, the pastors do it. If I'm, if I'm going to leave on a Sunday night and everyone else is gone and I notice that you know a tap is dripping and the garbages are not empty you know and maybe some of these windows are still open well I go shut them and I go do all that stuff right if someone has been given a particular responsibility and it doesn't get done then quite often it would default to me or to the pastors to get it done Really, it should be deacons catching those things, locking up storage container, bringing equipment from here to there, making sure that so-and-so's 
issue is addressed, so on and so forth. If it's been delegated to someone else, but the someone else doesn't do it, then typically it would default to me to catch that. When we have deacons, Lord willing, in the future, it, those kind of things would default to the deacons, which would facilitate me being able to have that narrow focus on prayer and ministry of the word that's ideal. Another time that deacons do the work themselves is when a highly competent and diligent person is required to do it. Someone that we would all trust to conduct affairs on behalf of the church. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Rather than pastors negotiating rental contracts or insurance policies or purchasing equipment for the church, really it should be deacons doing that kind of stuff. If we were, for some reason, uh, given notice that we couldn't meet here anymore or something happened to the building, you know, God forbid there was a fire or something, really it should be deacons that figure out where we're going to meet next Sunday, not pastors. But just as in any reasonably healthy church, no one expects the pastors to do all the work. Even when we have deacons, no one should expect the deacons to do all the work. There will be times when they do it, and they shouldn't be above doing it. And there will be times when they need to do it. But no one should expect the deacons to do everything. Traditionally, pastors delegate much of what needs to be done in the church to people. But though the delegation itself is the way that it ought to be, it ought not to be the pastors delegating most of it, but it ought to be the deacons delegating most of it. This is because it shouldn't be the pastors, but the deacons who are taking primary responsibility for making sure that it gets done in the first place. Again, pastors should be focused on prayer and the ministry of the word. But someone needs to be Someone needs to think about the church building being locked up after the service. And someone needs to think about food being taken to a church member in need. And someone needs to think about the broken microphone receiver. And someone needs to think about the defective microphone cable. And someone needs to think about the disorganized storage container. And so on and so forth. And listen, it shouldn't be the pastors who are thinking about all those things. It should be the deacons. And deacons have the authority to make decisions about how those things get done and the authority to delegate so that those things do get done. Though the deacons sometimes do those sorts of things when balls are dropped, most often the deacons are simply overseeing those sorts of things and delegating them out in a way that in many churches a pastor typically would. What would this look like in practice? If you were known in the church for being neat and tidy, would you think it's strange if I asked you sometime to organize the storage container? Probably not. If you were a carpenter and I asked you to replace a broken chair or maybe one of these pews that, let's say one of the kids had broken or something after a church service, would you think it's strange? 
Probably not. Because you would think, well, he's the pastor and he has the authority to delegate these kinds of things. And part of being a good church member is listening to the leaders of the church and following. But what if a new deacon in the future, such as one of the guys, for example, who's currently in our leadership training, what if he asked you, would you think to yourself, what or who gives you the authority to think that you can delegate this task to me? Actually, Christ gives deacons the authority to delegate these sorts of things to you. Not only am I and Pastor Chris in Toronto in authority over the church, so are in Toronto, Ron, Riley, and locally here in the future, uh, deacons that we would appoint. We as pastors have authority over category one work, prayer and ministry of the word, and ultimately, We pastors have authority over deacons in Category 2 work also. However, our deacons also have an authority over Category 2 work in the church. It's an implication of their responsibility to free up pastors for prayer and ministry of the Word. Think about this. They need to be able to have the authority. Deacons need to be able to have the authority to... To be able to take initiative, to solve problems, to find solutions, to catalyze change, to develop systems, and so forth, with respect to Category 2 work, if it is to be the case that they actually do free up the pastors to focus on prayer and ministry of the Word. Because if they didn't have that authority, they'd always be coming to the pastors for more guidance and for permission about everything. And so would it really free up the pastors in the end to focus on prayer and ministry of the word? Deacons in a healthy church exercise authority over the church with respect to category two work. Thus they may make real decisions about systems, policy, scheduling, etc., They may delegate responsibilities to church members in the way that pastors traditionally would in many churches. Deacons may assess benevolent needs and distribute benevolent funds according to their best judgment. Deacons may advocate for church members with outside agencies as they deal with legal issues, medical issues, family issues, etc., etc. Let me explain that point. Sometimes people phone me and say, I have a date in family court about the custody of my child. And what should I do? And who do I need to speak to about this? And I don't even know where to start. The church shouldn't be like, well, it's not my concern. Or it's not our concern. Right? The church should be able to provide some help there. I'm not saying, I'm not saying legal advice or whatever. But I'm saying even pointing in the direction of where they may obtain legal advice, right? Or uh, that sort of thing. The church can offer some support holistically and should offer some support holistically to the members. That we're actually a family. The same way if you were in in a bind and you didn't know what to do about a certain thing and you might phone a, a brother or an uncle and ask for help. 
advice, uh, someone to come with you to something or whatever. We should act like a family and show holistic concern one for another. But the pastor shouldn't be running around from one uh, court date to another, you know, and then this social uh, agency and then this and then da 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 Deacons can either do it themselves or organize for someone else to be involved. They can liaise between the people who are in need and the agencies or the, the individuals that can actually help them. That's what I mean when I say that. <clears throat> and so deacons do all of this kind of stuff within the parameters set by the elders in conjunction with the elders and there should be lines of communication open and they are to do these things even in subjection to the elders the pastors of the church retain veto power so to speak and may guide, advise and even overrule as necessary but in a well functioning church the deacons don't always need to be hesitating and checking with pastors about everything and waiting for specific guidance about what to do next. And the pastors aren't always micromanaging and second-guessing the deacons. There's a synergy between the pastors and the deacons, the way that there's a synergy between the right and the left hand as balls are juggled. Pastors do their job, and deacons do their job, and the balls are juggled better. And this brings us to the final point of this morning's sermon, which is the importance of the work. It is important that pastors are freed up for prayer and ministry of the word. If you've been going to sleep till now, or you've zoned out, zone back in. It is important that pastors are freed up for prayer and ministry of the word. Not only is it important to pastors that they are freed up for prayer and ministry of the word, it is important to the whole congregation. Though the diaconate does help pastors, it's not actually primarily about helping pastors per se. The apostles didn't institute the diaconate in Acts 6 for their own sake, for the sake of the apostles. And neither will we in due time appoint deacons in the church for my sake. Though it will help me. The diaconate is about helping the congregation by preserving the centrality of the spiritual priorities of the church. When pastors are freed up for prayer and ministry of the word, one effect is that the gospel stays central. The church doesn't devolve into an organization that is primarily concerned with feeding people physically, with helping people navigate tricky legal situations, with advocating for the family unit, and so on and so forth, with social issues. Those things are important and they're part of the holistic care that we have one for another as members, part of Christ's care as the chief shepherd for his little lambs. But the gospel is to stay central in the church. The gospel is that Christ Jesus came for us. When we had made a mess of things. Though we were created upright. In right relationship with God. In right relationship with one another and all creation. We plunged ourselves 
into sin, and as the old catechism puts it, misery. And Christ Jesus came for us. He came to rescue us. He came to live righteously for us. That His righteousness would be ours. That the punishment that we deserve for our sin would never be laid upon us. But upon Him at the cross. That we would be forgiven. That we would be restored into right relationship with Him. And yes, that one day all things will be made new. But they won't be made new by our efforts. The new heavens and the new earth is not coming about by the social work of the church. The new heavens and the new earth is coming about by Christ, putting all things under His feet and returning to destroy the last enemy, which is death. Christianity is primarily about proclaiming a message that Jesus is doing something. That God in Christ is reconciling to Himself all things. And this news is to stay central. Christianity is not about your best life now. As I've said so many times before. Christianity is about your best life later. And so people love to criticize the church. Well, they don't. They're always talking about heaven later and far away. And they don't do anything for me here and now. It's meant to be that way, that there's a priority to heaven and to the then and to the when Jesus comes back and to the what He will do as opposed to the what we will do. It's actually important that Christ and His gospel are given primacy over whatever social work we do as a church. It's important that it remain that way. And let me explain why. Because this is where I think a lot of people go wrong. It's not that our bodies don't matter as much as our souls. That's a carryover from secular philosophy. Platonism. In which there's a a real spiritual world. And then there's sort of a lesser physical world. And the more, the better... The sooner that we can transcend this physical world and get into the purely spiritual, real world, the better. God is redeeming both our souls and our bodies, you understand. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection of the body. And so the logic isn't, well, your souls matter more than your bodies, therefore the church focuses on your soul. That's not the logic. Behind why we give primacy to spiritual concerns. This is why we give primacy to spiritual concerns. If we could feed everyone in Barbados adequately. Every day. Breakfast, lunch and dinner. For the rest of their lives. There would still be an end to their lives. You understand that? If we could heal every disease in Barbados. Someone would come lame 
And we would lay hands on them and they would walk. And they would come blind and we would lay eyes on them and they would see. They would still die. You understand? People with cancer would come and be healed. But then they'd die eventually anyway. You know how I know that? Because that's actually what Jesus did. And those kinds of things are what the apostles did. And who around was there? Who can testify that I was sitting by the gate crying out and then Jesus made me walk? You understand? Our bodies are going to die. Listen. They will be resurrected. Our bodies matter to Jesus. Our bodies matter to God. But listen. Our bodies will follow our souls either to heaven or to hell. Since our bodies will follow our souls either to heaven or hell and not our souls, our bodies therefore it makes sense to prioritize the well-being of our soul such that when the general resurrection occurs and both the righteous and the unrighteous are raised our bodies will go to be with Christ where our souls have already gone Paul says in Philippians 1 to depart and be with Christ is far better to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord that's not the case for those outside of Christ Jesus to be absent from the body is to be present in hell to depart and be in hell is far worse but the scripture teaches us that everyone's body will be raised to join their souls where their souls have gone and so the logic isn't your soul matters more than your body so the church focuses on your soul the church proclaims that Christ God in Christ is redeeming both your soul and your body but first your soul and then after your body dies and goes in the ground like a seed as 1 Corinthians 15 teaches then at the resurrection your body raised imperishable and so even though there are legitimate bodily needs and temporal needs And even though we as a church should endeavor just in love to care for people's hungry tummies and various issues that they're struggling with in life and walk with them through it and provide what support and assistance we can through it, we ought to give primacy to that which is eternal and that which sets the trajectory for the eternal state of the people in front of us body and soul when deacons do or oversee as much category 1 work or category 2 work as possible 
pastors are able to focus on prayer and ministry of the word. And one effect of that is that it keeps the gospel central in the church as it should be. Even as we, as a church, get involved in other temporal needs and bodily needs of members. When pastors are freed up for prayer and ministry of the word, the scope of pastoral care is expanded. And the gospel is able to have a wider impact. Pastors can disciple future leaders more thoroughly, for example. Pastors can visit the sick or struggling more frequently with better availability. Pastors can be more diligent and effective in systematic pastoral visitation. I think I've visited all of our members at one point or another. If I haven't yet, phone me immediately after the service today and rebuke me. I think I've visited everybody at least once or twice. But that's like a year and a half. It could be better. It could be better. If there were 200 members in our church and just me, I would be... I would be I think doing well to visit everybody once in a year and a half. That'd be hard. That'd be really tough. But deacons doing and overseeing as much category two work as possible so that pastors can be freed up for prayer and ministry of the word enables better pastoral care, wider pastoral care in the congregation so that the gospel has a wider impact. Deacons make it a realistic possibility for pastors to do a better job of pastoral care. Colossians 1.6 says that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing even among you. That is with reference to the Colossian Christians. You heard me say that the gospel can have a wider impact. You might think, well, what impact can it have on those who are already saved? They're already trusting in Christ Jesus. They're already on their way to heaven. Don't they need other things besides the gospel? Well, as Colossians 1.6 teaches us, the gospel can have impact even on those who are already Christians. As we learn to appreciate it more deeply, to love Christ, to be more simply and purely devoted to Him, as we said earlier in the service, to work out the implications and applications of the gospel in our lives. All of this kind of stuff. In 1 Samuel 14, the Israelites are battling the Philistines. And Saul makes a rash vow that no one should eat or drink until he has vengeance upon the Philistines. Well, Jonathan, Saul's son, doesn't know about this and dips his staff in some honey and takes some honey to nourish himself as he fights. And he says to all the men around him, look, do the same. And, and they say, well, we can't because your dad, Saul, took a rash vow. You know, you know what Jonathan says in 1 Samuel 14? He says that a little bit of honey... Let me just read it to you here. He says, See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the 
spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. See, it brightened his eyes. A little honey brightened his eyes. But by implication, what he's saying is a lot of honey would have created a greater defeat of the Philistines. If everybody were able to take a little honey, the defeat would have been greater. If everybody were to take a lot of honey, the defeat would have been all the more greater. So it is with the ministry of the Word in the church, even among believers. A little ministry of the Word brightens our eyes and gives us some victory over our spiritual foe. But a lot of honey brightens our eyes all the more and gives us greater victory over our spiritual foe. And so when pastors are freed up by deacons who are doing and overseeing Category 2 work, when pastors are freed up to focus on prayer and ministry of the Word, there's a lot more honey being distributed in the church, in public and from house to house, as Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And that's good for us. And then when pastors are freed up for prayer and ministry of the Word, it enriches the quality of the ministry of the Word. The effect is that the ministry of the gospel hits harder. There's a difference between preaching and preaching, if you know what I mean. Sometimes, in fact, like today, I preach. And other times, I preach. You understand? God can speak through a donkey, as we know. But generally, God uses called, anointed, and prepared men. Deacons, by focusing, by doing and overseeing as much category two work as possible, so that pastors can devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Deacons can free up pastors to be more prepared in their ministry of the word, to soak all the more deeply in the things of God during the week. To commune with God all the more richly in His Word and in prayer. To spend more time in the preparation of sermons. To spend more time preparing for visitation. In bringing the needs of the people of the church before the throne of grace. In giving wiser counsel. Deacons can enable us to come into the pulpit or to come into your living room. Almost like Moses when he came down from Sinai with our faces shining. To minister in the church like those early disciples of whom the religious leaders were baffled about. He said, aren't these just ordinary, uneducated men? Ah, but then it says, they took note that they had been with Jesus. When deacons do their work, Pastors can minister as those who have been with Jesus. Their faces can shine more regularly, more consistently as those who have just come down from the mount. Instead of just preaching, they can more consistently preach. Deacons help the gospel, not only the ministry of the word, not only spread more widely, but hit harder, have a harder impact. So in summary, deacons are to be good men appointed by the congregation to free pastors to devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word 
so that the gospel stays central, so that the ministry of the word has a wider impact in the church and hits harder. So when I or our other pastors in the future ever refer you to future deacons, we're not implying that we don't care about you. We're actually implying that not only do we care for your temporal needs, we also care for your soul. And we care enough neither to ignore your legitimate temporal needs, nor to allow ourselves to be distracted by them. In referring you to the deacons, if we have qualified ones, we'll be referring you to good men, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whose job it is to see that the temporal needs of the church are well addressed. You're not getting second class treatment being ministered to by a deacon as opposed to being ministered to by a pastor. The sick and struggling will be cared for. The needs of the needy will be met. The church will be well run, functioning smoothly, and so forth. And all of this largely because of deacons. Those good men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to whom we may refer you and to whom, in fact, you should consider going first, going to first, understanding that your issue is a category two issue as opposed to a category one issue. We pray that one day we will have such good men among us, recognized and affirmed by our members in due time. We trust that the effect of their ordination will be that myself and any other pastors that we may have at the time will be further freed to focus on prayer and ministry of the word. And then as a result, that the gospel will continue to remain central at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. Even as other legitimate needs and issues that arise in church life will be adequately dealt with. And then we will trust that the ministry of the word will have a wider impact, both outside the church and even inside the church that the the quality of pastoral care will go up and that the ministry of the word will hit harder that there will be better and more competent counsel and care and preaching and that an effect of deacons will also be that we will all be able to keep our eyes better on spiritual things as our pastors who lead us are better able to keep their eyes on spiritual things As Calvin said, there's nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ. May Satan be thwarted by the work of deacons such that Christ and his gospel will always be central in the vision of this church even as we attend to other legitimate needs over the years and decades ahead.